This is Aliens and Artists. Part one of our conversation with someone we will refer to as Anonymous Experiencer One. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. While willing to share his many and varied anomalous experiences with ghosts, non-human entities, and craft, this experiencer and brilliant artist prefers not to share his identity. He's had lifelong contact beginning as a young child. My first experience with the paranormal happened when I was about three or four years old. As a kid, my first memories are like, oh shit moments, right? The moments where it's like, oh, I shouldn't have touched that. That was hot, you know, things like that. Like my very first memory, I think, is I I used to climb on top of my dad's briefcase in his office to see on top of his desk so I could like, you know, play with his pins or whatever. And my very first memory is falling off of that briefcase. That feeling of, uh uh-oh, it's like a danger moment or something strange or different happening here that I should take note of. Along those lines, my first paranormal experience happened at three or four in a town in Indiana. I was in my bedroom and I was facing away from the door and towards the room, I was just shoving around a a bin, like a plastic bin filled with some of my toys. And all of a sudden, like two figures kind of blipped into the room. Maybe they're what some people term as light beings or something like that. They looked to my eye, towards my perception, I could most liken now to say like the special effects from like the abyss or predator or something like that. There's a almost a water droplet effect looking and seeing the form of these beings. One seemed more masculine, one seemed more feminine, and they spoke telepathically, (laughs) which I now know is to be expected. So I was kind of shocked seeing this, though at that age, you know, there's this kind of tabula rasa effect, right? Where whatever happens is just kind of a new occurrence. And at that age, you take things in. And for a while after that, you take things in, even though they're new and even though it's different, it's not as shocking, you know? It was shocking, but I I would guess, I would say that like ontological shock of something like that, that's new and different from later was more severe than that day. So there I was, two beings like blip in about three or four feet to my left and kind of in front of me as I'm kind of like shoving around this bin of blocks or whatever toy was in there. And they communicate to me, we're here to visit you. We're not going to be able to do this as easily later. And I have no idea what this means. I remember it clear as day, but I have no, at that moment, I had no idea why, why that would happen, why anybody would say something like that. They were not familiar to you? They, they were. They were familiar. They, there was a familiarity that, like, once they were there, I was like, oh, you know, I know these guys. But I didn't know how. And it's hard to say at this point, whether three or four years old, whether I just wanted to be friends with everybody 
or whether, you know, as you do as a kid, or whether there was something that was like a real bond there. I would guess that there was, right? But they kind of communicated this very short, simple message of like, we're not going to be able to visit you later as easily as you as we can right now. We know you and we just want you to know that it's all going to be okay. You know, it's going to be fine. Uh, it's going to be hard, but it's going to be fine. In the end, it's going to be all right. You'll miss us and we'll miss you or something along those lines, but it's, it's okay. You know, as a child in that state, I was just kind of thinking, okay, <laughs> you know, all right. <laughs> I just kind of looked and looked at them for a moment. And there's just kind of like this, there's an exchange that I can't really, that w- went beyond such kind of simple communication that to this day, I don't quite understand. And then they kind of blipped out. And almost right after that happened, I, I kind of stood there and was like, wow, that really, but that was very strange. That was a very odd thing to happen. And I ran into the kitchen. Like there was a kitchen abutting a dining room kind of area. And I ran into the dining room area and I was like, mom, 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 mom. And I explained the situation to her. She sat down and she said, you know, those are what we call imaginary friends. And that happens. You're at the age where imaginary friends happen. And that's okay. And that's okay. And that'll probably happen for a while. And I didn't know I guess that was not only my first moment of encountering a paranormal being, too, actually. That was my first account or my first situation where I recognized that the kind of paradox of non-duality existed. Like, where she's telling me that these beings were imaginary, they were in my mind, and she says that it's okay So she's accepting of it, but she's also telling me that it's not real. And so then that was almost the more confusing aspect coming out of the situation. Was it confusing because, well, put it this way, you had been in the room with these two non-human entities only moments before. Did they seem less real to you than, for instance, the plastic bin you had been pushing around or the wall of the room? Absolutely not. They seemed more real than the plastic bin. They they seemed more real than the room itself. They seemed equally as real to me, as real as me, if not more real. Therefore, the paradox of your mom telling you they were imaginary when your experience was they were more real, not less. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, my mom, I love deeply and to this day is one of the the more she remains the person that I can consistently been able to go to with this kind of information. In that way, something began, which is really wonderful and beautiful. At the same time that day, I also, it began a window into how other people deal with this kind of information. So it was beautiful, and yet there was a bit of a separation. Not with her, but with, I guess, consensus reality. 
So it was a beautiful moment in that room with these two beings. And to this day, I don't know exactly who they were. I have guesses, of course, thinking what I've learned over the years. Okay, maybe after X amount of negativity in my life has come up or X amount of karma has come up or whatever, what have you, that maybe that was why they couldn't appear later. Maybe it had something to do with something that needed to happen so close to the beginning of this incarnation. But, you know, I have no idea. I don't know why, right? It was a beautiful exchange. And I'm happy that that was my first encounter with other beings, non-human intelligence, the paranormal. After that, my dad had to move to Mishawaka, Indiana for a, for a job. He worked for the power company. My mother, my father, me, my very young baby sister, we moved to Mishawaka, Indiana, and were due to move there the week before I started kindergarten. It was a sudden move, and my parents realized that they could move into a pretty amazing house considering how much money they had and how young they were. And they asked the real estate agent, why is this so affordable? Why is this so cheap? And the real estate agent came back and, and said, well, you know, people say it's haunted. It's had a lot of turnover because people say it's haunted. And my dad said, great. Because <laughs> my dad didn't believe in things like that at that point. My mom was a little more concerned, I think, or she says now that she was a little bit more concerned when she heard that. But my dad had absolutely no belief in that kind of stuff. So he was perfectly fine with that. It was huge, had all this wonderful detailing, all, all the kinds of bells and whistles that you would want out of an older home like that. We move in. My dad's an engineer and has all of these, he, he probably still does. He had all of these like crazy technical manuals. He kept all of his old textbooks from college. And for whatever reason, they were loaded in last in this moving truck, the moving truck that showed up first. After that, our mattresses, basic necessities. So these movers, they move all the boxes downstairs. You know how heavy boxes like that are that are just completely filled with books, book boxes. Absolutely awful. So they've moved these boxes downstairs and they just kind of set them maybe like five up, just these columns of boxes as they bring them down the stairs. And in the morning, I wake up and there's obviously a disturbance. I hear my mom and my dad upset downstairs, which was not super unusual at that point. They'd had a lot of marital problems before that, but this sounded different. So my mom later described that they'd gone back downstairs and these pillars of boxes, strangely, they had all been rearranged as if in kind of like a checkerboard pattern, completely evenly distributed over the course of the basement. It was a large unfinished basement. You know, I'd be curious to hear what you and my mom talk about with regard to that. Now sharing her perspective, this is his mother, 
So I remember going to bed that uh, prior evening, the evening of the move into the house, being very frustrated that I couldn't unpack these boxes and kind of talking to myself and just a lot of emotion charged with not being able to get that done. And they were stacked on top of each other as the movers had left them. And in the morning coming down where the boxes had been stacked, but in a pattern and on the floor so that they were all uh, nothing was stacked at that point. Uh, immediately going to that there was no explanation of something that was logical or made sense to me. I knew that as a five-year-old could not have moved those boxes. I did not move those boxes. I, you know, was trying to make sense of it and thought about, well, did someone else have a key to the house? Because, you know, it had just come into our possession and then kind of said, well, that's ridiculous. No, that's not it. Kind of a clear knowing that's not it. And later in the same day, in the same area of the house, again, the kitchen, coming in and seeing the oven door open and the oven on and immediately my response was this is my house you can't do that i i immediately went to there was some entity beyond myself doing this and prior to that i don't know that i ever felt or thought that way and it was like a oh sh where did that come from and then a oh that is so it was an absolute knowing and an absolute astonishment wedded in that moment they were talking about does somebody else have keys are they trying to scare us why would they do that i don't even know if they were trying to broach the obvious topic at that point of the real estate agent said this place was haunted and if a human being were trying to intimidate you <laughs> What a peculiar and eccentric way to do it. <laughs> That's a fantastic point. Yeah, right? Like, why? Like you'd either have to know that, you know, the place was known for being haunted and B, have a wildly <laughs> great lexicon of, <laughs> of, of, of A geometric haunted. formation as intimidation. <laughs> Right? Yeah. It doesn't really comport. Yeah, it doesn't really make much sense. It would take a very eccentric and ornery neighbor to <laughs> take on a task like that. <laughs> so that was just the beginning of a year and a half to two years of incredible haunting and, and poltergeist activity. My mom experienced things often from the kitchen. And it seemed like a lot of the activity would kind of grow up from the basement. It seemed to be that that was her experience of things. I experienced things separately and with her sometimes. My dad would experience things, but he would try to ignore them as best as humanly possible. To this day, he refuses to talk about that time. He acknowledges that something happened, something that disturbed him, and he's sorry He's expressed that he's sorry that he couldn't acknowledge it more, but he would leave it at that. He's done this several times over the years where he just couldn't bridge that gap somehow. Understandably. 
I mean, what could be more diametrically opposed to an engineer's world view? Yeah. And my mom's, my mom's primary experience, like at the outset, after the box incident, apparently was lights turning on and off, the dishwasher, things in the kitchen turning on and off, and things moving around. Well, my dad would just ignore the part where things moved around. And he would say, well, okay, there's an electrical problem. Obviously, there's an electrical problem. So he would bring in some of his, the people that worked under him at the power company, and they checked the wiring. I believe they redid some of the wiring, as I recall. It didn't help anything. And of course, he was also ignoring the issue where objects would shift around in the space relatively frequently. You know, I'd sit there and watch Saturday morning cartoons and things like that and sit behind the coffee table with my cereal bowl, watch television. Things would happen like my cereal bowl shifting over about 18 inches out of nowhere. There would be situations as freaky as, say, in my room, there would be a knock in a wall, that kind of odd situation where it seems like there's a knock happening, not on your wall, but in the wall. And I would look over towards it and I would look back and say my toys would be rearranged differently than they were before I looked over towards where the knock was happening. This kind of instantaneous reordering of objects. That kind of odd time dilation effect that people also speak about with regard to extraterrestrials and things, that would happen. It made it harder later on to figure out what was what. It made it hard to deal with what some people call the wastebasket problem of all paranormal activity being thrown into the same bin. Because when behavior seems similar or it exhibits similar issues, people try to say, eh, it's the same enough. It's similar enough. It's probably the same. The phenomenon, right? You know, it's interesting because we have to think perhaps the rest of the non-human intelligences out there, perhaps it's possible that many, most of them don't deal with time the way we do or deal with time as quickly or slowly as we do. Maybe they don't deal with temporality at all. Some of them, at least, maybe, perhaps. So when we say, oh, that's all one thing, we have to think maybe we're just one thing. Anyway, there is this issue of instantaneous reordering. And that was honestly the scariest thing that would happen in that space. It's odd when you're an age like that, say six years old, where I was still in that tab- tabula rasa, that kind of like clean slate club where something new could happen and I would take it in as normal experience. However, this was very much not normal experience. I would know from watching television the four stations that existed back then. We're talking the mid-80s. I would know, okay, you know, ghosts exist. I've heard about ghosts on television. I saw Scooby-Doo. I know there are fake ghosts, like whoever was running that haunted amusement park, supposedly. Whatever, you know. (laughs) But this was a very complex experience that I couldn't square away with what I knew from the lore of ghosts that I saw on television at that point. So that was strange. We would see shadows along the walls. One night, I remember waking up in the middle of the night and seeing 
a ghost entity that was about my age playing with my toy cars on the floor. I tried to talk to it, and it tried to, he tried to speak back, but his words were garbled, almost as if he, perceptually, it was almost as if his language was happening on a slightly different radio station, and all I heard was static. Wow. But there was an interaction. There was an interaction. It wasn't just a replay event, as what sometimes happens, I guess, with ghosts. This was a situation where it was playing on the floor. And one of the oddest things was the kid was about my age. The ghost figure was about my age. And it was playing with my toys that I had to clean up every night. So it had gone and got out my toys, and it was playing with them on the floor. And so as it was moving stuff around, the little toy cars were actually moving around on the floor. I could see them. Even though it was dark, night eyes had adjusted, and I saw that they were moving around. And I said something along the lines of, who are you? And the being looked at me and spoke. I could see its mouth moving. And the closest thing that I could describe is in my head, all I heard was like almost a form of static. I don't know what that was. And I don't remember what happened after that moment, whether I just fell back asleep, whether it disappeared. I don't remember what happened after that, but I remember that, that moment. There were other times in that space where I would feel as if something was watching me. That would happen very, very, very frequently. And because of the nature of that space, it couldn't easily be squared away in terms of the normal kind of boogeyman fears. It did feel like something was there. It did feel like something was watching me. And in fact, here I am at 41 years old, and I look back and think, how much of my experience over time, how much of my sensitivities to paranormal experience could have happened because of the way my brain was developing at that age, at six years old. With my parents being so conflicted with each other, they divorced in that house. Perhaps their negative energy with each other, perhaps that helped this situation occur. Perhaps that helped either bring about an energy to that space or at some points, people have even asked, is it possible that just the idea of them having that much conflict would kind of engender that kind of a response? That's, of course, a hard thing to parse apart because no matter how much conflict they're having, how does it create a ghost boy that plays with my toy cars at two in the morning? Well, there's a couple of obvious questions which arise from that. Following the idea that your parents' marital tumult may have caused this anomalous phenomena, well, half of all marriages end in divorce. So by extension, why aren't 50% of the houses in America haunted? There doesn't appear to be a consistent correlation. I actually want to ask the inverse, which is, do you feel the paranormal presence in that home contributed to them ending up in a divorce? That's a good question. That's a great question. I don't think that it helped, certainly. Interestingly, my father continued being an engineer 
for many years to come. He just retired a, a few years ago with the same company that he worked with that whole entire time. <laughs> First of all, when does that happen anymore, right? But my mother later became a minister. She became a very liberal Christian minister. And I do think, to your point, that the experiences there showed a stark contrast because my mother, I think, relatively consistently asked, what are we going to do about this? And my father would not acknowledge that the problem really existed in the house, the problem of the haunting. I asked his mother if she felt the paranormal conditions in the house contributed to the divorce. No, I didn't feel that way because the divorce was out of a growing, well, there were three things. One was the theology. My theology went uh, uh, underwent uh, a traditional word for this would be conversion. I had grown up with the idea that you married for life, that the husband was the head of the household, that you know you turn the other cheek, you forgive seventy times seven, blah blah blah. So all of that is to say, I had a very traditional theology that kept me in that marriage, and when that theology changed which predates the experience in the house. When that changed, then that allowed me to contemplate the possibility. And at the same time, when I watched what did to me, it was an abusive relationship. When I saw his abuse turn towards my son, that was it. There were enough other problems in their marriage that I, I think maybe my father thought that he could ignore that as kind of a second tier issue or a third tier issue. Whereas to my mother, who was uh, a homemaker at that point, was dealing with it more often because she would be relatively alone during the day. So when she was in the kitchen, things would often happen and it seemed like it would burble up from the basement, which was off of the kitchen. It would seem as if this activity would start down there and kind of like move up through the house. To her, it seemed like that. To me, I would just see things wherever I was. Not every day, but I'd say a few times a week, I would certainly see something during that time. Did anyone ever investigate the history of the house to identify possible causes or even survey the local lore of what had occurred there previously? Yes. Yeah, apparently there was at least lore, if not actual records, of a boy having killed himself in that basement. And I don't know what year that would have happened, but before that point. And later, years later, when I was a teenager, there was a strange situation where other paranormal activity similar to that was happening in a later house that we lived in. Of course, in those days, this is in, in the mid-90s, and we didn't know about what people now term as hitchhiker phenomenon. To this day, I still don't know if hitchhiker phenomenon is as simple as how people describe it, where you, know, you traverse onto some haunted area and then accidentally bring something home with you. I don't know that it's as simple as kind of collecting a traveler. Maybe it is. Maybe sometimes it is. Anyhow, much later... My mother found a 
and spiritual therapist, I guess you'd say, a woman named Susan in St. Paul, Minnesota, and, and contracted her to, because she was so desperate to have these situations stop in this later house, she asked this woman to bring this kid to the light, as it were, let this spirit move on. And it did seem to move on. That's part of the story that comes later, I guess. So in that space, we're there. My mother and my father separate. They'd sit me down at the, at the dining table and tell me they're splitting up. I move out with my mother to an apartment. My father stays in the house waiting for it to sell. It takes a little while for it to sell. He stays there by himself. To this day, he refuses to talk about that time. There are obviously several reasons why that would be happening. Somebody's first divorce, <laughs> the failure of a marriage, a vast haunted abode. I can imagine why he refuses to speak about that time for more reasons than just the haunting. After that, my mom remarries a theology and philosophy professor that teaches at a small college in southern Indiana. We moved down there to his home. Really interesting guy, significantly older than my mother. He's still with us, knock on wood. He's kind of a lot of the things that my dad wasn't. My dad was very fiery-tempered, very analytic, logically-minded. My stepfather is very generous, very thoughtful in kind of an abstract way. He has patience. He has a lot of grace and wisdom in a very different way than my dad does. There is that kind of grandfather clock ticking away, <laughs> going from one pole to the other. My mother went back to school, and eventually she became a minister herself. He was an ordained minister. He wasn't just a professor of theology. He was also an ordained minister. He was the chaplain of the college that he was at. Years before that, he had worked as a quote-unquote missionary and professor in Indonesia, mainly during the 70s, and he'd experienced paranormal situations over there. He had a very nuanced view of spirituality that came into play for years to come with our family, I'd say. In that house, I was at about the age nine or so. I was living in a partially finished basement. The framing and the interior drywall of my room had been done. And I remember in that room was the first time that I had a classic abduction experience by what we would term as ETs, I guess. I had a fever that night. I remember that I was a bit sick. Strangely, I had fallen asleep on my bed on one of those old husband pillows, like one of those old kind of huge overstuffed corduroy pillows with the arms that were super popular in the late 70s and early 80s. I was partially reclined on one of these on my bed. And it was very unusual for me to A, have a fever, and B, for me to only be partially reclined on a bed like that. But I woke up in my bedroom. It was night. I saw two beings past my bed that looked, if not like classic grays, something adjacent to that. Small, bulbous head. One seemed to be 
standing on the floor and one that seemed to be hovering just over the floor. The one that seemed to be hovering temporarily just over the floor had some kind of a wand looking device in its right hand. I would guess that it was about 18 inches long and maybe a little thicker than the width of my middle finger, chrome looking. I woke up and I felt a weird sense of wonder looking at these two beings. Why were they there? Maybe on some level, I thought they were like those, those two creatures that I saw in my room the first time when I was three or four years old. I was not immediately scared. However, the one to my right looking at them in front of me began to move towards me. And the walk was so unlike a normal human walk and was so fast. It was very sudden. I was very scared, very scared. And I remember the other being seemingly raising that wand up. And I don't remember anything that happened after that, that night. I remember waking in the morning and still being sick and having a bit of a headache and, and remembering that event having taken place and wondering about it. And for whatever reason, as opposed to the prior events, both with the haunting and with those energy beings or light beings, however you'd portray them, I didn't tell my mother about them. I later wonder whether that was some form of programming that occurred, some form of instruction that occurred. I don't know. Or maybe because you had the previous experience earlier in life where two beings appeared in your room, you chose to share that experience and you were told it was merely your imagination, your imaginary friends. Was that possibly a subconscious factor in choosing to say nothing regarding this later event? You know, that's a very, very good point. And also, I mean, along those lines, of course, in the haunting situation, my father completely, he wouldn't deal with any of that. Even when things were plainly obvious, when things would happen right in front of him, he would ignore it. So that, it's possible that that played into things. So if I can ask about one detail, the appearance of the greys themselves in this experience didn't initially trigger the anxiety. It was the way the one moved that brought on the distress, brought on the fear? Exactly, exactly. What created fear in me was not the appearance of these two beings. It was the suddenness and the articulation of the way that the one being moved. I remember being extraordinarily fearful and very suddenly because of that movement. I think part of it may have been that there was no communication before that moment. There was no kind of acknowledgement of, hey, we're here. Hey, who are you? You know, there's no exchange. It was just movement. That may have been it just as much as the movement itself the foreignness of the movement. With the benefit of hindsight, do you have any sense the fever was an opportunity? Did the fever play any role or was it completely incidental? 
I think that it's really possible that there was something there. I think that it's possible that the fever may have created some kind of opening. I think it's also possible that me being in an elevated position, looking back, may have made it more possible for me to see these these creatures, these beings, maybe because even if I was seconds away from a form of, of paralysis, that I was in an elevated state and could look upon them for a moment. It's very possible that both of those conditions may have contributed to that first remembrance. And I don't know if anything happened before that night, but situations certainly happened after that night. About, I would guess, a week or two weeks later, maybe not even that much. At that age, it's hard to remember time so chronologically, but very shortly thereafter, I had a very, very, very strange experience during the day. The basement steps leading from my room up to the kitchen were kind of slat steps, and you could see between the steps into the laundry room. And there was an occasion just days after that initial event where I was walking up the steps towards the kitchen and a being exactly like one of those two beings was in the laundry room and seemed to be looking through the clothes that were the dirty clothes that were sitting on the floor in front of the washer or dryer. It's one of those details that you can't, there's just, it's impossible to understand why it was there. To this day, I have no idea why or what it was doing there. Sometimes I'd think back and say, well, is that, was I just having some kind of like flash flashback? But why would I flash back to one of those beings like looking through clothes on the floor over there through the slats of those steps, right? Yes. And how many times in your life have you had a waking experience where you're walking fully conscious in daytime and you have a flashback that vividly manifests three-dimensionally in the very space you're in? It just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. It just doesn't, really doesn't happen. Having read some of the literature of ufology and abduction experience and things like that by this point, it only becomes more confusing, that instance, because I don't see much in the literature that describes kind of an obsession with dirty clothes or something like that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Some kind of lingering need, you know? And The first and only laundry account I've ever heard. (laughs) Yeah, me too. But interestingly, it's not the last one, which is absolutely bizarre, but that's decades later. Yeah, I don't know. Did, did was there some trace left? Did they like? I have no idea. Why? Why would that be the case? But then after that, as I continued to be in that house, I would run up those steps and down those steps as fast as I could, just because of the association of having seen that being through into the laundry room, as if the being would reappear and grab me from under the steps or something like that. Never happened. Never saw it again in that kind of situation. But for several years to come, 
I would book up and down those steps as quickly as humanly possible. I lived with that experience there without having told my parents about it. And I, I, again, I don't know why that was the case. I don't know why I felt like suddenly something so weird happened that I couldn't describe it to them. As we've said, there's maybe a few guesses why that would be the case. But previous history wouldn't say that there was a reason why it certainly couldn't be the case that I, that I could talk to them. So after that, while still living in that same house, strangely, on one trip to my grandparents' house in, in southern Ohio, with my mother and my sister and my stepfather, a different anomalous situation occurred where I was playing in the upstairs guest bedroom where I was staying at that point and where a lot of the kind of old family toys were stored. And this was in the early evening, I'd say, after dinner. I was about in third or fourth grade at this point. I was sitting down cross-legged, and I could see across through the door, out into a hallway, and through the guest bedroom door across the way, what was my mom's old bedroom, actually. And I was playing on the floor, and all of a sudden, Okay, downstairs, my grandparents, my mother, my stepfather, and maybe one of my aunts were talking in the living room near the front door. I'm playing with toys, and all of a sudden, I look up, and there's like a weird blip. It's inside the other room, which just happened to be my, the room that my mother grew up in. I look up, and there's a doorway, a portal opening up, about six or eight feet inside that room. I can see a little bit through that portal and see that there's another room on the other side of that portal. And at least two beings come out of that portal. They're both tall, more humanoid, more human looking than a, a gray. Interestingly, they both seem to be wearing kind of black clothing or a black bodysuit, but with, as I recall, a strange distortion over their face, okay? And I don't think this was a screen memory. It looked almost as if there was a digital distortion or some kind of screen literally placed over their face in that moment so that they, they could not be looked at directly. It was incredibly shocking to see. First of all, this portal, this like six foot tall, seven foot tall, maybe three foot wide portal opening up right there, and then two beings walking out of it. The one starts immediately moving towards me. I get up from where I am and I start screaming. I start running towards the entryway of the room towards the steps that were kind of equidistant between the two rooms. I am trying to get downstairs to the living room to get down to my, my parents and my grandparents before this being gets down there, as if that'll help somehow. I get about halfway down the steps before I am suddenly stricken as if I'm falling asleep, as if I'm 
being paralyzed. I'm caught by the first of these beings midway down the steps. I'm walked out the front door of the house by them before I completely fall unconscious. As I see into the living room area, my parents, my grandparents, maybe one of my aunts, I see them all sitting around on the couch, on the chairs in that room, and they're all asleep. They're all kind of blanked out. Most of them have their heads back. Their heads back as if they'd been they'd fallen asleep in such a way that that their that their head just fell back where they were on their couch. They're all inert. And somehow in that moment I felt like as if time had frozen. I don't know how to describe it, but it felt like time had actually stopped or slowed down to the point where it was indistinguishable from it having stopped. And I was being kind of held by the one being and walked out the door. And I don't, again, I don't have any memory after that of what happened the rest of that night. What was beyond the veil of that portal? What could you see in there or at the threshold? Were there characteristics in that space? I could see that it went back um, a decent ways. And it seemed like, I don't want to speculate too much about what was back there, but it's but it seemed like there was some furniture, maybe a table or something like that. Not conventional furniture, but it seemed like there are a couple of interruptions in the space before like the back wall area. So this was not a featureless void. No. They emerged from. You felt like there was a three-dimensional space on the other side. It did seem like there was a three-dimensional space at the other side near the edges of this like strange portal there was kind of an almost digital haze that kind of created a halo effect that created some kind of a barrier that i could see my conscious recall is that around that portal it was more light like what i would describe as the digital haze was more kind of bright white light or golden and white light and the haze over their face was more of a neutral gray kind of haze. It seemed as if I was looking towards them and I saw everybody asleep or unconscious, however you want to put it. And it was as if not a hair or a finger or anything would move. I didn't see anybody breathing. In that brief moment, there was there was this weird, eerie sense that somehow there was a time dilation effect looking back on it. And it's hard to describe why that was, but in looking in on it, it had seemed as if I was looking at, you know, it was real. It wasn't as if it was a picture because, like, as we were passing by them, three-dimensionality was an effect. The chairs were further away and then they were closer as we were moving towards the door, things like that. But it was almost as if a snapshot of them was in that space. Like a moment had frozen. Like suspended animation. Absolutely. Absolutely like suspended animation. And then how bizarre after all of that, going to the trouble of manipulating the temporal fabric, they walked you out the front door of the house, the front 
door. Yeah, who does that, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, and like, and like a lot of the literature, it doesn't, it's hard to understand what that is, right? You know, years later, I look into abduction accounts, and there was one case in Glimpses of Other Realities by Linda Moulton Howe, where beings kind of portaled into a room. But I've never heard of a case other than that, where somebody walks walks you out the front door like that. It's just strange. <laughs> but there I was, you know, and I don't remember what was outside the door. I don't remember anything about that moment. And it's fair to say nobody else does either in terms of the people that were in that space, in terms of anybody in the neighborhood. I would very much doubt that anybody saw anything happen because of the strange, it seemed like time had frozen. And like, I don't, like, I don't know where to go from there. I mean, it was an odd one, partially because they weren't the same beings as what I saw before. I didn't see a gray. I wasn't in my bed. It's actually the third or fourth morphological typology, right? Yep. The first two beings in your original experience were the water-dappled anthropomorphic forms. Yep. Then grays, and now more humanoid. So this is at least the third iteration of... Yeah, and if you're not counting like the, the odd poltergeist kind of energy that happened in the haunted house. Exactly. Right. So like here I am, I'm like nine or 10 years old and I'm not, it's strange because at that point I've been collecting comic books and baseball cards and things like that. But, you know, I didn't really imagine that I was going to be collecting the whole set this way too. You know what I mean? <laughs> 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 so... So after that, like the next experience that I recall was I was with my dad and he regularly in the fall rented a cabin on a state park in Indiana called Chain of Lakes. And there were these rental cabins there that had kind of like an A-frame chalet kind of layout where the bedrooms, there would be a very vaulted ceiling and that was kind of an A-frame look to it. And the bedrooms were down on the first floor, and it would just be kind of like simple drywall that would kind of end after eight feet. And there would be, you know, maybe 16, 20 feet between like that and the actual wooden rafters, the, the wood of that roof. As a kid, I remember at this point, my sister's a little older, she and I there were bunk beds in the kids' room, and we would get up on the bunk beds, and then we would climb up onto the tops of these eight-foot-tall walls and kind of, like, crawl around sometimes. And you could look down into the kind of sunken living room and over into the kitchen from there. And you could look up to these, these vaulted ceilings. Well, one night, since I was the older kid, obviously I had the top bunk in the kids' room. I mean, obviously. So one night I wake up and strangely, I am levitating. Everything in the room is dark. I can't see anything. My eyes haven't adjusted yet, uh, but I'm, I can tell that I'm levitating. I'm levitating belly up. All right. And I reach out my hands and I can feel the wooden slats of that vaulted ceiling in front of me. I move my hands. And I can feel one of the crossbeams, one of the large 
large cross beams that holds all these things together. And I start to panic. Like, why am I right there? This is maybe a minute long that I feel this happening. I kind of move my hands along. And I'm actually, as I move my hands along, I'm able to kind of like drag myself across the roof, the vaulted ceiling a bit. And I fall unconscious. I wake up later on the floor of my room, of that kid's room, next to about four feet away from the bed, I would guess, kind of next to where my sister was sleeping in that bottom bunk. And I was just on the floor on my back, and I felt kind of bruised and battered a little bit. I felt as if I had fallen, obviously from not seemingly not that entire distance, because I would probably have been a lot more battered than I was. But I felt fragile right then. It was early morning. It wasn't dark anymore, but I woke up and I just got back up into my top bunk and laid there and looked at the vaulted ceiling and saw exactly where I had kind of levitated to. Now, at that time, I did not automatically connect that to these other experiences. I did not know about being levitated out of a room before. So I did not know how it was possible for that to have happened. I wondered whether I had kind of dreamt myself into some state where I had suddenly levitated. How amazing would that be, right? Looking back on it, I wonder, was there some snafu with the design of that home and trying to levitate me out? You know, we were in a state park. Maybe that was like an incredibly, you know, speculating here. Maybe there was some kind of typical gray type abduction happening at that time. If that were to be the case, it would make sense for a couple of reasons. I was being floated somewhere. I would be floated later places. But why was I stopped at the vaulted ceiling like that? Was I coming back in and I just happened to wake up? Was I going out and I just happened to, to wake up while they had a momentary problem? I don't know. Could it be because of like the eccentric design of the chalet-style home itself? I mean, I've met a decent amount of these greys over the years, and I would say that if there are any gifted improvisers among the greys, I haven't met one yet. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I haven't, if there's, if there's like a John Coltrane of the greys, I haven't met him. <laughs> <laughs> They're not, they don't seem to be very good at shifting midstream in a situation like that. So maybe that had something to do with it. Maybe just like the, strange design of the home had something to do with there not being a preset for how to like blip me out of the top of that house. I don't know. I don't know why. But there I was feeling this wood in front of me, obviously floating, and then me waking up on the floor kind of bruised. So that happened. (laughs) Uh, The rest of the trip went well. It was fall, beautiful colors, leaves on the trees and whatnot. Before we move on from that moment, that experience of being levitated, floated out of your bed at that point, there was not a pattern. But in retrospect, you feel that a pattern emerged in terms of 
how these events are initiated, recognizable commonalities over time emerged. Absolutely. I, w- I would say that it's there are probably dozens of occurrences after that of me feeling the sense of floating, feeling that even the sense of a part of the wall dematerializing. We'll come back to this later on, but later in my 20s, I lived in an apartment in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, where, say, during the the middle of winter, I would know that something like that was going to occur because all of a sudden, all of the cold air would rush into the room as if a whole wall had disappeared from the side of my apartment building. You know, you go from being kind of like a 70-however-degree room to just feeling all that cold air rush in. And then that would be part of the initiating event in a situation like that. I wonder these days if there do seem to have been like kind of innovations in the technology, let's say. I remember when I was a kid, I would hear tone kind of in my head before I would feel this kind of like knocked out feeling. Later, that would turn into like a flash, a white flash, either in the entire room or seemingly just in front of my eyes. This highlights an interesting dichotomy. On the one hand, as you so hilariously put it, if there is a gray out there, who is a great improviser, I haven't met him or her. Yeah. If there is a John Coltrane among the greys, I haven't met him or her. So funny and so true because their behavior seems to hinge on programmed tasks in tightly controlled conditions. Once that's disrupted, they're at a loss. One surprise and they become inept. On the other hand, over decades, there does seem to be a progression in which they've improved their strategies, their technologies. They've gotten better at their job. Because you've had so many experiences over your lifetime, you've been able to track these upgrades, which is a really special component of your sharing your life experiences. And we'll come back to this at later stages in your life, but picking up after what you just shared. Sure. What came after that? You know, what was next? Later after that, there seems to be kind of a lull. I don't remember any abduction experiences or even that much paranormal experience happening between the ages of about 11 and 15 years old or so, which is notable. It's notable in that having a pause that long is strange. And I don't know whether that's because I was just maybe that compliant during that period of time or that the extractions were so seamless that I didn't notice anything or possibly could I have been intentionally choosing to not recall it during that time or maybe it actually was just totally paused. This would have been in the period of time between like 90 to 94 or so. And so I don't know whether that was because of something that was going on with them, something that was going on with me. I have, I have no idea. Do you feel it had anything to do with the onset of puberty? It's 
a critical window biologically, emotionally? Does that feel germane at all? It's possible. Interestingly, I think I went into puberty really early, and it's something that I felt like I had to kind of stay quiet about. I was really cognizant of the fact that I had pubic hair before like anybody else that I knew of. Of course, you know, this is the age, third grade or something like that. You don't, it's not like you go around showing your dick to everybody, but it's not as if you're in third grade and you don't go showing your dick around everybody, you know? Yeah, like you both. just exhibit very selectively. Yeah, 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 exactly. As you continue to be throughout the years, hopefully. <laughs> Only the special ones, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good. Anyway, you know, there's certain situations where stuff like that happens. And, like, I knew that, like, something different was happening to me and that it was, it seemed a little bit early. However, there was kind of a pause right after that happened. And I didn't know why that necessarily was. But you're right. There may have been something just as simple as that, where the onset of puberty was just like, we're going to wait until he gets to the next stage of this whole thing before we come back. I don't know. So later, we're living in Minnesota at this point, suburban Minnesota, kind of nestled among this old subdivision from the 70s that was kind of built into an old Christmas tree farm. So there's evergreens everywhere, as there is in Minnesota anyway. and. Before that, we had been living in Kentucky in junior high. I had acquired some great friends. I was climbing slowly up the rungs of popularity among some kids. Mind you, I'm I'm still like deep in the nerd dork terrain in some ways. Definitely at that table in the lunchroom. But after having moved around so much as a kid, there was some stability there and I was happy with my friend life there and so when we moved to Minnesota I was very upset we'd moved there for my mom's work she became a minister at a different church and as kind of a concession to me I got this one room in the house that was off of everybody else it was a pretty large room and there's a split level home and I was the only person that was in the bottom of the split level home of course, this was a vacation for my parents as well, because they didn't want to deal with my teen angst at that point. And so having me, having me off in a way was kind of a long-form vacation for them as well. But things picked up almost immediately after moving into this place. I don't know if that, you know, there's the mirroring of having moved into that haunted home so many years ago and then moving into this place. Possibly that there could be some kind of inception event, beginning event that would kind of rejigger something like that, a re-beginning of sorts. I don't know. But we moved in there and almost from the outset, both abduction activity and kind of poltergeist activity woke back up. My mother noticed the kind of more poltergeist activity. That had to be quite disquieting to her i was and i think that she didn't know she didn't really we could only kind of guess why that was happening whether it was something new in the home there was a lot of stuff that didn't really make sense about that though the home was only about 
20 years old or so. So in our reductive worldview at the time, it didn't seem old enough for there to be a haunting there. It was a newish home. Like, why would there be a ghost there? Now, looking back, it seems extraordinarily simplistic to think that way, but that's kind of where we were at the moment. Eventually, I kind of came to the idea that maybe our original spirit from that other house had somehow found its way to us. Because, in part because the phenomena was so close, reordering, electrical issues, things as simple as the door kind of like moving open or closed, like out of nowhere, or budging quite a lot. Like the calling cards of that previous spirit. Absolutely. And I wondered why it was so seemingly based around me, of course. Now I recognize that that often happens around adolescence, that kind of energy, but I still don't know why. I would notice situations like feeling kind of a dark energy that would coalesce around a doorway, and it would just sit there and kind of almost dare me to walk through it. I would just have to, I would be kind of like stuck in whatever room I was in in the house, kind of sensing that dark energy or even seeing that dark energy in that doorway and feeling like, okay, I'm either staying in this space until it dissipates or I'm going to walk right through it. And if I did walk through it, I would feel this extraordinary darkness kind of like temporarily kind of invading my space. So when you say dark, you mean malevolent, not necessarily pitch black in hue. Yes, yes. It was, it was definitely more malevolent oriented. As opposed to other kind of telepathic encounters or something like that, there wasn't, I couldn't source where that malevolence came from. There was no telepathic exchange where I would have some kind of shared dialogue or kind of transpersonal situation where I would have some understanding of the, the history of that being or something like that that wasn't there. I would just walk through and feel extraordinarily dirty and gross. <laughs> and um, yeah, and that was that was one of the kind of new iterations that was that was unique to that space rather than the haunting that had occurred before. Interestingly, I think the first time that I pointed out that presence in the house to my mother was it kind of collecting in the doorway to my room. As it had just begun, she came into the room and we were talking, and I guess I kind of looked freaked out. And she was like, what's, what's wrong? What's the matter? And I pointed over to the doorway and I said, can you see that? And she looked over to the doorway and she got really freaked out all of a sudden. She goes, yeah, I can't. I can't see that. I'm, I'm trying to kind of dig into the recesses. And I certainly remember moments of sitting on his bed talking about it. I remember doorway, threshold, corners, upstairs versus downstairs, sense of entities, if you will, presence, shadows, movement, sense, visceral sense. And I said, yeah, that's been happening lately. And she was 
She said, oh, okay. Well, and I seem to remember her saying something along the lines of like, well, we'll figure out how to deal with that. <laughs> and uh, she's always had kind of a caring and in a situation like that, matter of fact, viewpoint towards things. Interestingly, during in that time, during that, like in that house, I would have midnight floating events. I would even sometimes feel as if the bed was even levitating slightly below me as I was being floated out for some reason. I would wake up in the morning, and this is the first time I'm, say, like 15, 16 years old at this point, where I would wake up and have scars or cuts on my body, on my shin, and in other places. And I didn't know what to make of that, you know? At one point, I was talking to my stepfather who had been kind of made privy to this whole situation. And I have no idea, I don't even know to this day, whether that was the first point where my mom had kind of come clean to him about the earlier haunting or that had come up before. I don't know. But my stepdad, this kind of patient, older, thoughtful guy, he told me this great story about how when he had gone over to be a missionary and teacher, a professor over in Indonesia, he was living in this village, I guess. And he, very soon after going over there, was asked to come over to a home to do an exorcism. He was a Presbyterian. He'd never performed an exorcism before. You know, exorcisms are more of like a Catholic rite. He had it written down in a book because he was a good student or whatever. He had it there. That was never something he'd encountered before. However, in that area, the types of Christian missionaries they were most used to were Catholic missionaries earlier on. So one of the strange points of contact, apparently, is like, okay, well, when are you going to ask a Christian over to your house? It's like, well, if, you're, if somebody's dying, if somebody's born, to be on the safe side, maybe. Maybe when somebody gets married. Oh, and definitely for exorcisms. <laughs> apparently, that was something to do. So he relayed this story. I think he'd relay this to you, too, of him being in a situation where he was asked over to somebody's home and saw objects floating around the space and paranormal phenomena happening. He related to me, like, I did the rite of exorcism. And he said, the weird thing was, is that I didn't necessarily believe in the rite of exorcism. And I don't know that they did either. The people that I was in the space with, they weren't Catholics. I wasn't Catholic. I did the rite of exorcism, and apparently nothing ever happened in that space again, according to them. And so he kind of said, he was like, so what, did that Indonesian spirit believe in Catholicism? Is that what happened? <laughs> and he kind of left it open-ended. And I think maybe looking back, I didn't take the story at this time, but I think he was such a low-key guy that maybe he was saying like, hey, I'll, I'll do the exorcism thing if you want me to do the exorcism thing. But I didn't take the story like that at that time. He said the story and I was like, wow, that's interesting. But I didn't think, 
oh yeah, you should definitely do that right here, right? That didn't even occur to me at that moment. But it was a fascinating story for the moment. And I think that that kind of helped inform things as well in terms of the boundary of non-duality, let's say, or like the, the ontological exercises that we go through within consensus reality or shared these overlapping consensus realities, if you will. Or the doubleness. Absolutely. The performance of an exorcism ritual by a non-Catholic, a rite of a lineage not his own, among a multiplicity of disbelievers, and it still works. Yep. Permanently. Feels like a quintessential instantiation of doubleness. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was fascinated by the story, and it made me feel better in a strange way, but for whatever reason, I didn't he was such kind of like a low-key and passive guy with something like that, that I, for sure, if I would have said, well, you should probably do this, this rite of exorcism, I'm sure he would have done it. It's doubly odd because you and your mother had the shared sighting in the house of the dark entity. Mm -hmm. And she literally says, we'll figure out how to deal with this. And then your stepdad tells you the story of how he removed a malevolent entity via exorcism and yet no one connects those dots and says hey right do that so weird. try that right but yeah it's typical it's typical among experiencers the most obvious thing in retrospect is not evident in the moment as it's occurring absolutely and i don't feel like it's like i wanted i mean these things were very interesting at the time but it's not it's also not something that i was looking forward to i was not looking forward to this malevolent entity i was not looking forward to abduction experiences at that time at all they weren't even novel anymore neither one i mean neither the kind of poltergeist or malevolent entity or the abduction experiences were were kind of new or fun or cool or interesting at that moment. Though interrupted, I was used to both of these situations happening, and I was not psyched or jazzed to, <laughs> to have stuff like that happen. So that was another situation where it's like, why wasn't that leap made where it'd be like, okay, yeah, do that. Do the rite of exorcism. That'd be great. Though I would do little things. I do remember that my mom mentioned, oh, okay, there are these like St. Michael candles, these Catholic candles that people light to try to get evil spirits away. And so I grabbed some of those from like a Mexican grocery store. Those are kind of cool anyway. You know, by this time I'm 16 years old and having incense and candles around my room seems like a kind of a fun thing to do. I would sometimes leave these glass candles lit at night when I went to bed, knowing that it wasn't going to burn the house down because they were in these tall glass jars. Strangely, sometimes I would wake up in the middle of the night and the flames would be really, really tall. Thin, like the normal flame size, but I'm talking like 12 to 18 inches off of the candle. Yeah like really high, thin flames. Whoa. Yeah, 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 maybe 10, but like... The candles themselves are only, what, 
eight or nine inches tall, twice or more the size of the candle. Absolutely, yeah. Not really physically possible, or or at least explicable. Yeah, I don't know how that. Yeah, and sometimes it would only be like say four or five inches, but even that seemed really strange. But then every one, but then every once in a while, it would be like at least again the length of the whole candle up, the whole length of that glass jar up, and the air would feel charged. I'd wake up with that kind of charged feeling in the air, and I would look over, and the candle would be the flame would be at some crazy distance up. Again, a very thin flame, the normal width of the flame, but just extraordinarily tall somehow. I'm partially saying this because if there's any other listener out there that has had this happen, I'd be intensely curious because it's another one of those things like the gray looking through the dirty clothes where it's like, this is not something that I've encountered and looking into this stuff later, but it's definitely something that I experienced. Be sure to catch part two of our conversation with Anonymous Experiencer One. And you can contact Anonymous Experiencer One by emailing him directly at anonymousexperiencer1 at gmail.com. And you'll find that email address in the show notes. Feisto's Disc. About 3,500 years ago, an artist, probably of Minoan extract, pressed 242 strange symbols into a clay disc and fired it up. The hieroglyphic motifs are varied and are configured in spirals around the disc. They include dolphins, cattle, lilies, a boat, and crocuses. There are 45 distinct symbols in all. The disc is double-sided, and on side A, there is one symbol in particular that looks like, well, a flying saucer. Granted, no one knows what the symbols on the Feistos disc mean. They're undeciphered, and the Minoan language is lost to us. Maybe scrutinizing anomalous phenomena for decades induces artistic pareidolia. Can somebody please channel Ingo Swan and remote view the Feistos disc? Tell us what its creator meant by stamping this particular figure inside A. Does it signify a flying saucer? Scholars have been fighting over both what each symbol literally represents and also what its linguistic corollary may be. The symbol system on the disc is presumed by most to be a syllabary because there are too few symbols to be pictographic and too numerous to be an alphabet. So a syllabary seems the likeliest by default where each symbol is a syllable and groups of symbols form words This was the system used in the later Mycenaean Linear B. Based on pretty much nothing at all, some speculate the disc was a hymn to the Earth Goddess. Others suggest it was an index of religious centers. Some say a fertility ritual. Without a Rosetta Stone, it might as well be the Voynich Manuscript. It's an inscrutable enigma. So I'm just going to say... Looking at side A of this Feistos disc, 
That's a fucking flying saucer. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one -on -one sessions with me, Stuart Davis. Sessions focus on creativity, spirituality, and transpersonal hypnotherapy. Go to theliminalmuse.com to book a session, or check the show notes for a link. If you enjoy the show, consider becoming a patron. It's like joining a secret society that's not trying to take over the world. That isn't subverting the power structures and will never, ever subjugate your sovereignty. It's an open secret society. Patrons get all kinds of exclusive access to original video, audio, and written works. Some of it's randy and racy, not as debauched as, say, some presidencies, but just enough to make your mom pause and blush as she passes by your dimly lit room. Check the show notes to become a patron, or go to stuartdavis.com and click on the Patreon link. Wink, wink, invisible secret handshake. We leave you with the song Elysian Fields by VUCA, featuring Amanda Huff. To learn more about VUCA, check the show notes for a link. Elysian Fields is the third release by the art collective VUCA from its alternative reality concept album, The Geometry of Lies. Knows where you're from. Are you too fancy to have some fun? Oh, let the games begin. Let me come on in. Roll on your shoulder. Burn you to a smolder. I'm wrong.